When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, Rebecca, I'm so frazzled. I know. <laughs> Hello and welcome to a podcast. Hello and welcome. About things. Yeah. I'm here in, in Oregon and the sky is a Blade Runner blood orange. Um, it's so eerie. So it's weird. We were out inadvisedly probably with my kids yesterday. We're not going outside today walking. And my son Andrew goes, that looks like a blood moon. You don't want your, that's not what you want to hear is your kids saying, look at the blood moon. That's yeah. not what you're looking for. Not in for. the middle of the day too. Not in the middle of the day. You're walking around. Um, this is the book where I podcast, as you know, probably if you're listening to it, uh, we're catching up. We're now in, boy, there's so much news. Um, there's so much yeah. news and, that it's even hard to know where to start. And we've had a week off, like two weeks ago, yeah, it was still the dog right. days. And then we took Labor Day off and now it's just the fall. So here we are. Here we are. But um, we'll get to some follow up. We'll get to some new stories. But before that, let's uh, let's do a sponsor. Listener feedback. I've got one. Someone DM'd you on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Don't be creepy about the beautiful struggle struggle we mentioned in the deals, deals, deals. How that was actually Coates's uh, debut book in uh, 2009, frankly, that Mm -hmm. I have read and forgot that was the name of it. And this is one of these... um, I, I guess the charitable way is um, reframing mm-hmm. of an existing book for younger readership, not a completely new work. It's still interesting, yes. still got a lot of money for it, but it's not quite was, the um, splash that we were thinking it was going yeah, to be. Yeah, and it uh, wasn't a creepy DM. It was a nice DM from a longtime book writer. Okay, fair, person. fair. So that's yeah. welcome. <laughs> but don't be creepy is just generally good advice. <laughs> yeah, there's never, a, there's never a be creepy. That's never an admonition. <laughs> no, people don't yeah. need permission for that on the internet. They just do it. Yeah, just don't. Just don't know, that's the worst. <laughs> um, and then you wanted a special thanks. Yeah, I think you want to shut out. When we were talking about, I think favorite things we've read this summer, and I talked about a section in Braiding Sweetgrass where Robin Wall Kimmer and her daughter are rescuing salamanders that are trying to cross the road. Um, a listener named Justin emailed us a link to a podcast episode, like an hour long, specifically about that phenomenon of why are they trying to get back and how do they try to get back uh, to these pools where they were born in order to spawn themselves. And it was just a sweet gesture and also a really fascinating thing to listen mm. to. So thank you, Justin, for sending that my way. Yeah, that's pretty good, too. Um, as you're listening to this, our next bonus episode... Um, is The Princess Bride, which will be coming out on Wednesday, uh, Book Nerd Movie Club. We had a great time with oh, that. Man, As so always, fun. I had some thoughts after. I was like, I wish I got that in the show, but alas, mm-hmm. you've got to close the book somewhere. Then the week after that, we're going to be talking about um, David Chang's new memoir, Eat a Peach, which we're both um, enjoying right now for one half of the segment. Then the other rest of the episode, I just conscripted Jen Northington to come... <laughs> Uh, nerd out with me about the recent release Dune trailer, um, Denis Villanueva's um, adaptation of Frank Herbert's classic Immortal. 
um, science fiction and fantasy work with one of the more star-studded, it is. interesting casts we've seen in a long time. So we're not going to spend too much about it today, but I want to acknowledge yeah. it exists, Rebecca, And right I am now. like 0% interested in Dune and 1 million percent interested in seeing that movie with that cast. I mean, do you think the casting sheet was just thirst traps? Because like, it's Momoa, it's Isaac, Chalamet, Zendaya. I mean, what are you doing it's, here? I mean, it's a genius way to make people take seriously a property that, you know, has been sort of like it's an icon of nerddom or it's sort of even a stand in yeah. for nerddom. It's like, oh, I bet you're holding a copy of Dune right now. Um, and that the existing adaptation of it is real bad. So deeply unsexy, I would say, <laughs> is one way of describing the existing adaptation. Yeah. And the like, my only other familiarity with it was there is a great HBO show a few years ago called Togetherness that the Duplass brothers made, and two of the characters on the show were trying to like make their own Dune film. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Which was probably about as good as the existing yeah. adaptation, um, but just such a piece of pop culture for decades now like i'm i'm super super interested and that cast is just straight fire yeah it's it's interesting at the very least and beautiful we'll see how it goes i'm sad that when it comes out in theaters in december i will not be there seeing in december but (laughs) what an um, act of faith will theaters still exist in december (laughs) i don't know i don't know but anyway we'll save that but it's going to be a little while before you hear that but jen and i will have some time to ruminate um (laughs) Uh, on what we're seeing in Dune there. So that's coming up pretty quick. Uh, the big news, the big industry news this week is we talked before about Simon Schuster is uh, pretty was prettying itself up, putting itself on the market. Mm-hmm. It was going to the debutante ball that is the open market for publishers right before COVID really got its wheels turning. Or let me say COVID's wheels were turning. We were noticing it, um, most of us at this point. And we wondered what was going to happen with it. Is it going to be the worst time to ever try to sell a book publisher? But we've heard rumblings. We heard pre-rumblings, but now we're getting actually like linkable rumblings, mm. a show title, um, <laughs> that Bertelsmann, which is the parent company of Penguin Random House, is maybe interested in buying Simon & Schuster, which, of course, is a big publisher, and we thought a publisher would make the most sense for this. You and I had sort of bird-dogged HarperCollins mm-hmm. as the most um, like the girl most likely here. I'm surprised to see this. I don't know if this will happen. I'm not sure why these rumors are happening in public, but Rebecca, tell me about what, what this could mean. Do you think this is going to happen? How should we think about Man, this? Man, you know, I'm so interested in this, and I was surprised to see it because PRH is already the biggest. Uh, And Thomas Rabe, who is the CEO of Bertelsmann, told uh, the Financial Times that, you know, one of the reasons that they're interested in doing this is that they've already got established history at Bertelsmann with consolidation in the book publishing market, that they combined Penguin and Random House very successfully. And that created the largest book publisher in the world. Um, So like the way that he puts it is like, well, of course, then we're interested in Simon and Schuster. Um, I didn't think that that's something that they would go after because it has the potential to look like a real play for not monopoly, but like real market domination. Mm -hmm. And Rabe um, says has shrugged off antitrust concerns. Uh, So that's interesting. I mean, I guess it depends on when you make this move too. like this administration is not terribly concerned with antitrust issues. So if you're going to try for something like this, now might be the time. Mm -hmm. And the other, I think, most interesting part of um, his statement to me was 
you know, we looked at this with antitrust stuff, we don't think it's an issue. And that if you look at the market hollistically, particularly the strength of Amazon, and it includes self publishing, we don't think this will be an obstacle. I mean, that's the first time that I've seen someone especially that high up at a traditional publisher or, you know, the parent company of a traditional publisher, talking about Amazon and self publishing as contributing to the overall size of the book publishing market, which like, is a real thing and also is a very convenient piece of data for them to use here as a like, no, we wouldn't have too much of the market because self-publishing is a thing. Um, I think that's interesting. I had never considered that point before. You're so right to note that, I think, as the most interesting parry of an antitrust concern. And I don't know, I admire it both as a sort of uh, lawyer's trick (laughs) argument, but also maybe a truth. I think there might be a truth to it as well. I'm not, I'm, I'm considering it right now as whether or not I'm going to accept or reject it personally about how we feel about books and, and reading put together currently. Yeah, I'm thinking about it too. And I've been trying to come up with helpful analogies for myself. Like, you know, if the Gap, well, I mean, the Gap and Banana Republic are already owned by the same company, but like, let's say like right. the Gap's parent company merges with J. Crew and Nordstrom and something else. And they're like, well, we don't have to worry about antitrust because look at all those independent clothing sellers on Etsy. You could make your own clothes. I mean, that doesn't <laughs> Right. Like that's, it seems like yeah. kind of the equivalent, you know, full, like, right. you know, one woman, one man shops, um, making clothes that they sell independently through a third party marketplace like Etsy is pretty equivalent to books that are published by mm-hmm. individuals just using a platform. And I don't know if I'm buying it as a real argument, but I thought it was a really interesting thing to say. Um, yeah. And it's interesting that they are considering it. I'd be fascinated to see like if this did go to some sort of arbitration or if a court had to weigh in on it, would they consider um, what would be the official declaration about the place of self-publishing in the overall publishing mm. market would be fascinating to know. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm sitting with that one. It's going to be something I have to noodle on for a bit. I think if we move from the court of law, with which to you cor- and I are ov- <laughs> ov- obviously experts. Can we yeah, move to the court, court of rightness yeah, for a minute? Let's do it. You knew I was going with uh-huh. that. I love the court of rightness. That's, that's, pre- that's pre- previewing a, a future uh, half-baked idea that I don't think I've <laughs> talked about on the show before. The court of rightness being if we were to decide ourselves whether such a move would be desirable, undesirable, or neutral for the reading industry, right? My, my, I'm given to understand that the purpose of antitrust legislation is to protect consumers, Mm -hmm. right? That you don't want um, one supplier of something to have pricing power to the point which where they can really jack up the prices and screw people, right? PRH, does adding Simon & Schuster get PRH any closer than where it is right now to screwing with customers' ability to buy books at a fair price? I guess is where my, that would be the gavel with which I would try to strike the court of rightness or should I be thinking about that in a different way? I mean, I think that that's, the, I mean, that's the question about antitrust. Um, yeah. And I don't think that this gets Simon or gets PRH or Bertelsmann into a place where that's the action that they're going to take. Like, it's mm-hmm. already hard to sell hardcover books at, <laughs> you know, at full list price. And it only gets harder um, when the economy is taking a hit. So I'm not I don't know that this would be something that screws consumers in the financial sense. It would be interesting to have such unified control of the like the gatekeeping of how publishing functions and who gets their stories published and who gets access to those things um yeah and in terms of 
like fairness to readers uh, just for on the measure of like the quality of books or would, mm-hmm. would your reading life change like my reading life has not been impacted at all by PRH being PRH and not Penguin and Random point. House at least in a way that I haven't noticed like nothing yeah. that I had in my reading life has gone away and also no new wonderful things have happened because they mm. merged like it it basically feels like a nothing burger you know like Penguin Random House had two separate business operations and now they are together um as a yeah. reader, it hasn't impacted me. So, yeah, yeah I don't know. I, I think there's a way in which to think about this from a wider antitrust or, you know, how can a monopoly be a, a problem for consumers? The idea is that competition is good, right? Mm-hmm. You want competition among suppliers so that or, or sellers so that, you know, there's some pricing power and they're competing for the customer's dollars, which theoretically means better deals for the customer to win the business. I think the wider view of the reading world and the book publishing and distribution and sales world is to think about who does this help? Where where does this engender competition? I think the answer is it gives another player to to fight with Amazon, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's another way of thinking about this. Ultimately, might be good, not just neutral for readers, but maybe good for the reading ecosystem if it gives a little more, you know, whiskey in the spine <laughs> of PRH, PRH SS, the, mm-hmm. the SS PRH, that's the ship <laughs> now, apparently, um, to combat Amazon's dominance, which, again, Amazon historically has won market share by thinking as from the customer's perspective. They, they win by screwing other people, generally not the customer, is how they kind of proceed. But then who will stand up to Amazon if they ever should or could mm-hmm. or want to do something that really isn't in the rank-and-file reader's best interest? And I think the larger you have uh, an opponent on the other side of the ring, maybe that's good for readers. Really yeah, I, I think, don't know. I think that could be good for readers. And you're like, for a long time, you and I have just wished for PRH to like launch their yeah. own good uh, online retail mm-hmm. of their books and pull them off of Amazon and just be like, we're going to do this ourselves. And they have not gone that far yet. But with the, especially the assets of Simon and Schuster as well, you'd have enough books that it would be, you know, compelling to readers. If you went searching for those titles on Amazon and you couldn't find them, people would probably come search them out and find them either mm-hmm. through a different bookseller or from your direct retail. And that does create useful competition that I think is good for the publishing industry and would be good for readers. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, as a, as a publisher, as an author, as an agent, I don't know that perspective? Are there fewer opportunities Mm. for the kinds of books and authors we want to get published to get published? I don't have good insight into that. Um, I think that still happens at the acquisition level. Like that's just who wants to buy what. Um, Maybe it gives them, maybe there's less competition for, you know, there's, there's fewer buyers of books, right? I get of contracts of manuscripts. And so if there's fewer buyers of that, does the competition mean that prices go down? Yeah, I don't be, know. Some of these houses, they bid against each other, yeah. even if they're owned, their own houses. You know, mm-hmm. We've talked about that before as being both really weird, but also, I guess, good for if you're a seller of a manuscript, you want as many buyers as you could possibly get. So I just don't know that this would, is this just, would this move it from a difference in degree to a difference of kind, I guess, is the ultimate question. Yeah, here. I would love to hear if there are any agents listening to this, if the merger of PRH or the merger of Penguin and Random House 
did mm-hmm. did that decrease your like the field of possibilities for acquiring editors or did it become more difficult um, to sell manuscripts yeah. into those houses as they consolidated? I think that would be fascinating because of course we as readers, like we don't have a list of all the books that didn't get bought that year or that didn't mm-hmm. get published or what the percentage of hits and misses is. So I'd be interested to know that and, it, and you know, then we could do some better guessing about what it might look like if they added Simon and Schuster to it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's stay on PRH for a moment. Um, in the moment we're in, um, a lot of people are being more forthcoming than they ever have been about the nature of their workforces. And I think part of public accountability is to say where we are and then over time update people mm-hmm. on what progress we've made. PRH releases a workforce report on diversity. The link in show notes, com slash listen. Publishers Weekly, good piece by Cal Reed. Um, the top line is... 78% of PRH non-warehouse workplace is white, and 80% of its warehouse staff is white. Demographic portions of African-Americans make about 4% of non-warehouse staff and 3% of warehouse staffing. Um, uh, Asians make up 8% of non-warehouse staff and Hispanics 7%. In the PRH warehouse, the numbers are Hispanics at 11%, African-Americans at 3%, Asians at 4%. By gender, the non-warehouse staff is 30, 73% women. The warehouse staff is 59% women. Um, the U.S. CEO, Madeline McIntosh, says, I don't think any of us is likely to be surprised by the data which show that our mm-hmm. company, like our industry, is far too homogenous. But seeing what we generally know to be true, documenting this way is hard. The distance we have to travel to become a truly diverse company feels all the more daunting when you look at the numbers. McIntosh emphasized that PRH goal is to reflect the demographics of American society, but she also acknowledged the difficulty in achieving that goal. McIntosh explained the publisher has a very high retention rate and staff Mm -hmm. often spend their entire career at the house stalling the promotion of new hires. This is, we know, this is what we know. There's nothing surprising here. I'm very, very encouraged by the numbers being public. I'm encouraged by McIntosh's public comments and her, I think, plain acknowledgement of the structural problem she has, even if the, the desire is there the structure is going to be tough to move and it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of this over years, mm-hmm. right? This is and over the, years commitment that they're going to have to it do, looks that like, everyone has to do. Yeah, PRH has been doing a better job of this. It, it mm-hmm. notes in this piece, in the last four years, their hiring has become increasingly diverse. So whereas in 2016... 79% of all new whites or of all new hires were white in 2020 so far about 71% of all new hires are white and if you're looking at you know US demographics where about 35 or 40% are people of color um, you know that 70% of new hires being white is getting them closer. But of course, like you're going to have to do this with your new hires for a long time and have those people, you know, it's great if they stay for their whole careers, but you're going to have to do this long enough that it accumulates into enough of the folks who have been around forever are retiring or aging out of it or leaving. Mm-hmm. And then the people who are in the pipeline have been there for a while and are more diverse. And you've been doing that for enough years that your whole workforce is more diverse and not just your your new hires. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm also very encouraged to see them, uh, to see Macintosh acknowledge the situation and acknowledge that it's difficult to make meaningful moves when you have such a big structure um, and so many people who stay inside that structure for their entire careers. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we've seen 
some interesting shifts in publishing hiring lately, and that takes us to additional PRH news. Um, Two other things this week. One is that um, Madalika Sika um, is joining Crown to be the new vice president and executive editor starting on October 12th. She is an award-winning journalist. Uh, So not the first time in, you know, the last couple of weeks that we've seen someone go from the land of um, journalism into running uh, a major publishing imprint, um, a woman of color, especially. So some recognition as well that there aren't a lot of folks of color high enough up Mm. in the ranks uh, in these publishing houses that they can be promoted into the top level positions. So some outside hiring is necessary to have diversity at the top levels. And this is maybe related, maybe not, who knows. Uh, Jerry Howard, who is the VP and executive editor at Doubleday and has been there. um, He's been in publishing for 46 years, is leaving at the end of the year um, after his 46th year in publishing from Doubleday. um, An illustrious career. That opens up a spot. Um, Someone will need to step in as the publisher of Doubleday. do some interesting speculation uh, as the year wears on maybe Mm. about who that will be. Um, He, we don't know why, you know, he's had a 46 year career. So this could have been a planned retirement. This could be um, a decision inside the publishing company with Howard or without him to um, ask for people to leave, to create space for more diversity and more promotions where I'm not, we don't know. We might never know, um, but it will be interesting to see who, you know, steps into that role who's tapped for that. So lots of changes happening over there. This is one of my favorite positions in publishing. I mean, not positions, Mm -hmm. but a lot of the books I read come out of crown nonfiction. Mm -hmm. Like this is a really, for me, like I wouldn't ever want a traditional publishing job, but if I did, being the person in charge of acquisitions at Crown Nonfiction is a great job. They yeah. do a lot of interesting books, a lot of things you've read, we've talked about on the show. I'm sure a lot of the books that she acquires over time mm-hmm. we'll talk about. Um, really interesting. You know, they have a couple of ways you can go, right? You, you replace people that are retiring or moving on from outside your organization that isn't as diverse as you want it to be. Or, and you also need to um, have a farm team. You know, you need mm-hmm. to have junior people that come up through the system at the same time and a- attacking it from both angles is going to be the work of yeah. decades, I mean, probably, right? I yeah. mean, that's kind of a situation that's going to have to happen. I, I think so. If people continue to stay at PRH for no. their entire careers, it will take decades to level out, and it'll be fascinating to see what Sika brings to Crown. And, you know, Jerry Howard mm-hmm. at Doubleday, like, Paul Auster, Kevin Barry, Bill Bryson, Don DeLillo, you know, yeah. Quincy Jones. It's like Nan lineup Mar- that we were talking yeah. about a couple weeks ago. Walter Mosley, Chuck Palahniuk, David Foster Wallace, Hanya Yanagahara, just a huge list and a, mm-hmm. a, a titan of a career. And so that'll yeah. be an interesting spot to see filled, too. So that's a lot of turnover in the PRH side, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with Lisa Lucas and Talese retiring and th- this t- turning over here. Um, fascinating times in the world in which we live and this particular part of the world with which we are more than interested is uh, subject to it as well. Um, I guess also, um, let's do a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do some more industry stuff here in a minute. Uh, Printing. Mm -hmm. It's, look, I don't understand. I don't understand, Rebecca. (laughs) Why? How? Okay, here. (laughs) Just make some noises, Jeff. (laughs) Let it out. So apparently... Apparently, there are two major printers of books in America. Just two. Mm -hmm. And both of them are going bankrupt simultaneously? (laughs) Thank goodness they're not owned by the same company. (laughs) 
How did publishing let this happen? I, I mean, I get that maybe it's not the highest margin business in the world, but if I'm Penguin Random House, I'm interested in buying this, shouldn't I have a printer I can rely on? Why don't I own the it's, printer? I, I don't get it. Yeah. I, I don't get it. The why don't I own the printer, I think, is a really interesting question. And when we talked about some of this looming large, I think it was for LSC Communications a month yes. or two ago, it was yes. noted that they don't just print books, they print all kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, and you know the overall demand for paper collateral for stuff has decreased over time. Um, mm. But yeah, publishing has not been paying enough attention to this, it seems like, or maybe just it was a failure of imagination and they didn't assess the realistic threat uh, that a publisher or that a printer or both printers could yeah, right. be maybe going under at the same time or at least facing major, major issues. Um, and there's books that aren't coming. They're being delayed. Mm-hmm. You're not getting enough copies. What was the, oh, the oh. one that sold out, the yeah, Beowulf, yeah, right? Yeah, there was, yeah, we were musing recently. Maria Devana yeah. Headley has a new, like, very punk rock transa- translation of Beowulf that's supposed to be great. And it's impossible to find anywhere. And I had to, like, ask little birdies in publishing, like, is, can we not find it? Because, like, did the print run not get successfully printed all the way because of these things? Or did it sell out or what happened? Yeah. And, like, happily for Headley, she sold out her first printing. Um, but but still can't get them. I, right. Presumably, if the printers were functional, they could print some more. I mean, well, I, it doesn't and, seem like rocket you know, science like to me. We do one of the levels of our tailored book recommendation yeah. service for Book Riot is hardcover books. And sort of every week, there's a different list of books that our bibliologists want to select for customers, but that are going to be slightly delayed because they've gone back for reprints and the reprints are delayed. <laughs> Again, I don't know enough about vertical integration. You know, I'm a very, very, you know, the business we're in is very, very different. But there's something to be said for owning the technology that you, technology and um, resources and production capabilities that your business relies upon. Mm-hmm. And it blows me away that PRH, in its efforts to be, you know, if not a monopoly, at least we have to utter the words antitrust in, in talking about PRH, that they, they have to rely on bankrupt printers largely in America well, to get the books. Like, know, that, that seems wild to me. It does. And it's especially interesting given the disruption that we've seen in, and you can take your shots now because I said disruption, um, in other industries where, yeah. you know, like the way that Warby Parker manages to make glasses that are cheap mm. and the way that Harry's and the Dollar Shave Club do things is they control their whole supply chain. They bought the yeah. factories that make the thing. And so they control the start to finish process and get, then can control the expenses of it. And they're not paying the markups um, to mm. multiple you know, properties, multiple companies along the way to have their product produced and then to be able to sell it. And, you know, publishing tends to change and evolve a lot slower than other industries. But Mm. it would be it would make a lot of sense. Hopefully, they've been looking at this, like, I'm just hopeful that someone in publishing has been like, maybe we should own a printer. (laughs) Maybe we should make sure that we can print these books that we're spending a seven figure advances on. I guess maybe you might even have a you might have a better antitrust case against PRH buying one of these printers than mm. against Simon & Schuster because now you're 60% of trade plus 50% of the printing capacity. <laughs> like they, that's even – but because in that situation, they could be anti-competitive. In this regard mm. is they could decide not to print any of their competitors' books, right. right? Or if they did, they could make sure theirs gets printed first or some you know onerous terms to Macmillan or, or someone just, else like that. They just buy it to be their in-house printer. You know, yeah, like right, PRH right. prints, you know, about 50%, if not more of the books that come out in the U.S. in a year. Mm-hmm. So they buy one of these companies, they take it in-house, they print their half of the books for themselves. Like, that's, uh, it's a thing that could occur. I wonder how much the, I mean, the expense of that would 
have to be lower than like acquiring Simon and Schuster, I would think. Maybe I, not. Boy, I, oh, I, don't I don't know. know. I mean, there's backlist and IP That's and true. all that stuff that goes into it as well. Yeah. And, and not to not to be you know too willfully obtuse, but there are factors that would le- I think led publishers not to be like let's make sure we own and control the the technologies mm-hmm. and processes of which our company depends. One is, you know, digitization. Even as people have trumpeted print from the roofs, you know, audio and digital and other things. You know, it didn't seem like maybe it was worth a huge uh, capital investment in a giant printing plants, plants that are expensive to run. You know, it's union labor. The ex- it's sure, expensive to it keep those expensive. things up and going. Yeah. And then also outsourcing a bunch to China or, or other Asian companies, but China mm-hmm. especially seems like it was very cost effective. But as we've learned, because of trade and global geopolitical things, that can blow up in your face too if you're not careful. Yeah. Like so, the too many couple of convergence of things that I think make logical sense to have you know, not kind of paid attention to it, but the chickens are coming home mm-hmm. to not print right now um, <laughs> yeah, the, by not controlling those The cost-benefit analysis of it seems like it's it has shifted in, yes. you know, where yes. when they made these decisions, and people have reasons, and I'm sure that there are good reasons like the ones that you were just listing, that PRH mm-hmm. doesn't already own a printer, that it was cheaper to do it the other way, and you could still yeah. get the books, and it was mostly fine. Like, it was generally pretty rare until a few years ago that we just like couldn't get a thing because it was stuck on a boat coming from China um, or because Mm. there were geopolitical issues going on and that is changing and this is a big thing to have to try to shift Um, you know even if they were able to do this and take it in house that's like a couple years worth of effort if not more Um, so yeah and cost savings shows up on a balance sheet right. you know it shows up on a P&L but risk doesn't it's, risk right. is very hard mm-hmm. to account for on a balance sheet and so if you're bean counting about it which frankly most business should most of the time stick to bean counting but in assessing risk it's easy i think to overlook as like you know kind of a black swan event like what yeah. if we have an international pandemic and both of our publishers go out of business and china it's more difficult to get books out of there like that's kind of an edge case but you have if you're a big enough company there's going to be edge cases intersecting mm-hmm. all the time and it, i would if i were them it would have to be pretty darn expensive for me not to have that as an insurance policy of some kind that you could keep the yeah. books. Well, and out. this has to be like at least a byproduct of this is that somebody can do some bean counting probably about the sales yeah, that were lost right. as a result of these books not being printed on time or not being printed at all or mm. titles that were expected to be published in the yeah. fall and land, you know, the, the sales landing in the fall are now being right. delayed. Like how, what does this do to your balance sheet? And at what mm. point does it make it worth it to start exploring other options. Um, but yeah. if you're a, if you're a reader and a book you were looking, you're, you're a reader, you're listening to this podcast, um, like a book that you were looking forward to has been delayed. It very well might be because of this. If your favorite bookseller can't get a hold of a thing for you or says it's going to take six weeks, it's probably because of this. Um, I guess, you know, have a little extra grace for your <laughs> independent yeah, booksellers right, right now too. Right, right. Or anyone, I mean, yeah. anyone you buy books from necessarily. Um, Let's do one final break and um, come back and talk about a story I really don't want to talk about, uh, to be honest, but we got to do it because it's uh, Dan Brown. Okay, Rebecca. Um, is it is this a just go read it situation? Like, what do we want to do with this? Like, there's part of me that doesn't want to... Is there some part of this we need to, like, wrestle with as, you know, maybe the internet's two biggest Dan Brown stands? I don't know of anyone else. If it's us, it's not a corner I expected to find myself on. It's very foggy, gaslit, and dangerous corner to be standing on these days. Like, we're in a noir movie. Um, but this is the Times' is, you know, state of the Dan Brown estate kind yeah. of a piece. 
And it is amazing. It is amazing. Where, where, what, what's the highlight? What do, how can, I guess let's, let's give the people the amuse-bouche to get them to go check it out. It's behind a paywall, but maybe have one of your articles or maybe subscribe to the Times. <laughs> but what do we need to say about it to get them interested in saying maybe there's something they need to spend oh, some time with? You know, the Dan Brown profile is always a thing of beauty, yeah. but the thing that I loved the most about this piece is the mention that like to get to his the place where he records music in his house he touches the corner of a painting and then a bookshelf moves and he goes like into the room (laughs) like so much there i think you were telling me offline and i think it's absolutely correct that dan brown is the most likely um villain of the next dan brown novel (laughs) he he really is i would read that in a second because and my logic there was he is very, he's clearly a really smart guy. Mm-hmm. He's very buttoned up. But then we also know that to keep those buttons buttoned up, there's some slippage in other parts of his life. Let's put it, let's put it kindly that way. And he has a lot of resources. And I feel like he's the kind of guy that seems mostly reasonable, but has like a couple of super weird ideas, mm-hmm. like a Dan Brown villain, <laughs> whether it's like population control or a conspiracy about how, uh, you know, we, we either all are descendants of Jesus or none of us are, something else like that, and that he would become fixated and obsessed on a small thing like this. Like, he's done some stuff that, had, like, when remember he funded that occult library in the Netherlands, like, oh, as a sort of payback for, like, right. you can imagine that he's got, like, some lab or some library somewhere or a secret cabal of researchers studying yeah, this thing, like, and he and finally decides that he's going to enact his master plan. Right, like, Dan Brown's Google history has to oh be. Oh, my God. <laughs> unbelievable (laughs) fascinating and there's some stuff in the story that like that i don't care about and that would not be news if dan brown weren't famous you know about his relationship with his ex-wife and his relationship with his alleged mistress that he bought horses for and cars to transport the horses and all kinds of all all kinds of alleged things that he did or did not do um but it's a journey this profile this profile is a journey and you know every dan brown profile is a journey like i feel like there's a one of these every few years and there's always a new detail of like well of course he has like a coat of armor standing in the corner of his bathroom you know mm-hmm. <laughs> like there's just always something like, dan brown is he it, it's like hiding in plain sight like you know he's got his pleated khakis and his yes. cardigan and he's like the freak flag is just trying to come out i think this is what we're edging our way towards is like dan brown is getting older he has fewer f's to give and like he's letting it come out. And in some ways, like you were saying, it just is oozing out. Like you have to work really hard to yep. appear so clean cut and, you know, just like, yeah, so clean cut and safe all the time. And to be uh, that kind of cultural figure. And it's starting to, it's starting like that facade is kind of, he's like Mr. He's like Mr. Rogers on the outside and Christian gray on the inside. Oh, like it's, it's so, it's what it is, Rebecca. I don't make it up. I He did this to us. I didn't do any of this. None of this is my fault. I don't like this, Dan Brown. Why did you do this to us? Um, yeah, I mean... It is so a journey. It, we, we are contractually ob- obligated to mention it. We're contractually ob- obligated to wrestle with it. I am not contractually obligated to say that this is okay. Also, this is a sidebar. How do you declare the gift of a horse on your taxes, do you think? Like, do you, what, do you, 
<laughs> well, you have to deny that you gave or received a so horse. It, it can serve also... if it's is it com- if it's a gift or compensation. I guess is what I'm saying here. Are we looking at a 1099? How do you put a Clydesdale on a 1099? Well, if it's just a gift from a friend, do you have to declare it at all? Yeah, I'm. Well, do you think Dan Brown didn't cheap out on the horse? That thing exceeds the get. Well, I guess we're in the Netherlands. I don't know. What, as you might guess, I don't know what the tax law in the Netherlands is about the gift of li- gifting of livestock. I'm not sure what the particular cap gains tax situation is there. But in reading the stories again, it's like you in America at least you have to declare gifts of in excess of twenty thousand dollars. I'm guessing these show horses. I don't know. I'm given to understand that ho- good horses are very expensive. The sport of kings. There's a reason for that, right? Mm-hmm. So it got me thinking about if this horse was worth over whatever the gifting threshold was, she would have had to have declared taxes on it and declared it either as compensation or a gift, and they're taxed differently. And just the 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 hesitation of the pen that someone had to think about. I, I got stuck on that for a second. Like, and this is what this Dan Brown has made us think about. Or not, th- and this is what thinking about other humans' reality of being human makes us yeah. think about, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And all of this is coming out on the occasion of the publication of Wild Symphony, which is Dan Brown's oh, right. children's book about a symphony that is comprised of animals who play instruments. Um, and it pairs with a classical music album that Dan Brown wrote and performed some if not all of and an augmented reality app that has songs and like musical accompaniment for each of the animals in the wild symphony so listen i'm i i, I don't know what to say <laughs> i i'm not touching a dan brown augmented reality app right now i can't get close <laughs> to that thing i'm so i'm so sorry dan no i'm not I'm so sorry to myself and the world for having to utter that phrase. <sighs> so oh, doctor. Just you, This makes me afraid of what the like 2022 version of the Dan Brown profile mm, is going mm. to reveal. I mean, it, it could. It's one of those things that I want everyone to be happy and I want everyone to consent and I want everyone to obey the law and treat each other with respect and niceness. Yep. Maybe the tyranny of the khaki is just is like <laughs> he needs to molt out of it. He just needs to shed it mm-hmm. and leave it on this, the desert floor and just become whatever it is he's going to become as long as he's not hurting anybody. Right. I totally agree. You know, I think the, the sausage casing that is his slacks needs to go because <laughs> there's something else. that This isn't good for anyone what's going on right now. That's all I'm saying. This isn't good for anyone. It's not. You got to free yourself, Dan Brown. Yes. You don't have to appear so perfect. It's okay. Just don't hurt anyone. Right. That's all I'm saying. Do what you got to do. But do it. Let's, it, maybe the, being above board would mean that it's not quite so weird for everyone involved. Uh, speaking of weird for everyone involved, um, Sphere, which is one of the worst Michael Crichton adaptations. You know, we, we're Crichton fans mm-hmm. here on the Book Riot podcast. HBO is going to take another crack at it. I think it's about time to revisit some of these um, Michael Crichton adaptations that were less successful uh, early. The mm-hmm. Dramatist Strain, Congo Sphere could come back from as we've run out of Jurassic Park variations to do. Also on the HBO front, I think it's HBO. Yeah, it's HBO. Uh, Lib posted in our ch- in our in our chat today that someone's going to take a crack at the Westing game, which I am very excited oh. to see. I love that book as a kid. Um, I think that one would be really good to see. It's, we could, I mean, we're in, we could do adaptations all day now, mm-hmm. but those are two notable ones we want to talk about there. 
You want to do Hero of the Week before we get out of here? Yeah. I kind of feel like after that Dan Brown yeah, thing, we got to do Hero of the Week we and there's gotta, nowhere else to we go. We need to like cleanse our karma, shake right. it off. So our heroes of the week this week are Victoria Scott Miller and her son Langston Miller. Um, when he was eight, they would... He would he would write books and fill up pages with characters that looked like him. He is a young black boy. And then they would go to Barnes and Noble to look for books. And he would be trying to find kids books that had characters that looked like him. And it was a huge scavenger hunt. They could find wow. like maybe five books that represented the type of book that Langston was writing and the type of work that he wanted mm. to do like as an eight-year-old. Now he's nine. And he gave a an interview to the Washington Post recently saying that he's looking for books that depicted how brilliant, handsome, smart, and how amazing black boys are in the pictures. I'm not looking things for things that show us with big lips, big bodies, big noses. I'm looking for things that represent who we are. I'm brilliant, handsome, and intelligent, just like my brother. And then for good measure, he repeats, and handsome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and his parents... Um, yeah, so his parents are Dwayne Miller and Victoria Scott Miller, and they created, in support of him and his uh, his community and other ki- other you know young black kids, created something called Liberation Station, um, which began as an independent pop up bookstore that they founded, which sells only children's literature in which black children are the main characters. Um, before hmm. the pandemic, it was a mobile bookseller that they would set up shop around um, central parts of North Carolina, like in the lobby of a boutique hotel or in an art gallery. Now they sell a curated selection of about 500 books online, and they have a warehouse with 5,000 volumes. Um, Business has been booming for them, especially since the coronavirus hit and since uh, George Floyd's murder and the Black Lives Matter movement has re-swelled over the last couple of months. And this is a wonderful profile of this couple and their kids and the work that they are doing directly in their community to uplift stories that feature black children and demonstrate the need for those to publishers but also like directly to support their son in writing the books that he wants to write that feature kids who look like him Um, it it is very good for the soul and just may every last one of your efforts succeed that's a really awesome piece Uh, as always you can find links to everything we've talked about this week for better or ill you can find the links to what we talked about this <laughs> yeah. week at bookriot.com slash listen you can navigate there to uh, the book riot podcast page you can also shoot us an email podcast at bookriot.com until then rebecca life is pain everyone that tells you different <laughs> is selling something